0: Hello and welcome to the Penguin Podcast. This is the place where leading authors reveal their creative process by choosing a handful of objects that have inspired them. My name is Nihal Arthanaika, and today in this very special live edition, I'm joined by the writer of over 70 books for children and young adults. Now these include the Noughts and Crosses series, which is being made into a major BBC production starring uh, superfan Stormzy. My guest is also an OBE, former children's laureate, has uh, kindly brought along with her these inspirational objects, uh, which include a desk that sits in her attic. It is, of course, ladies and gentlemen, put your hands together, make as much noise as you can for the wonderful Mallory Blackman. Hello. Here we are. Here we are. Now, before we go uh, to the object specifically, 70 books. I mean, that is prolific, right? Let's break this down.
1: Well, they're not all full-length novels. You know, they're not all kind of the, the thickness of like Checkmate and so on. They're, some of them are picture books and some of them are early readers and some are middle-grade books, etc. So there's kind of like across the, the age ranges.
0: And your latest, of course, is Crossfire. And that's the fifth book in the series. That's right, The Noughts and Crosses. Give us a synopsis. What is Crossfire? Where are we at now in the Noughts and Crosses world?
1: Well, um, Crossfire features Toby, who's now an adult, and Callie Rose, and two new characters, Libby and Troy. And Troy is uh, 17, and Troy is um, Callie Rose's half-brother. Toby is a politician, and now he's, he's determined he's going to get to the top, the very top, he wants to be Prime Minister. And just when he's about to get everything he wants, he's arrested and charged with murder. And Callie Rose is a barrister, so he goes to Callie Rose and says, can you defend me because I didn't do this? And so it's a, their story and also Libby and Troy's story.
0: But there's been a gap of over a decade yeah. between Book 4 and Book 5, hasn't yes, there? Yes, there has. How enjoyable was it to jump back on...
1: Oh, I love it. I mean, it was, it's one of these things. I mean, I, I, I'm not just going to write them because kind of like they, they, they seem to be kind of amongst my most popular books. I have to feel I have a really strong idea for them to write them. Uh, but it's lovely to kind of get back into that world. But with this one with Crossfire, I must admit, um, part of me was kind of angry about what was going on as well and the whole thing about politicians playing that divide and conquer game and sort of like the 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 politics of fear and the politics of division and and that's how they kind of rule us and I wanted to kind of address that in the in in the book same as Noughts and Crosses because I sat down when I sat down to write Noughts and Crosses I was really angry because that part of that was inspired by the Stephen Lawrence case as well it's my way of channeling those emotions so that's how Crossfire was born
0: how difficult is it to leave Characters behind. Like I said, it's over a decade, and you've explained Mm. that history has caught up Mm. with those characters Mm. and overtaken them, Mm. in fact, because now we live in times where it's almost too difficult to imagine how bad things can be because they're here. We're kind of living through things that when you first started in 2001, Mm. I guess you didn't think you would see.
1: Well, I, I didn't think it would get this bad. I mean, it's, it's certain things as a minority, you're always going to see that the majority will not. Mm. And I wanted to kind of turn that on its head so that, you know, in, in the books, white people are the second-class citizens and how they have to deal with racism and so on. But certainly current events, things have definitely taking a turn that I didn't anticipate. But it's one of those things when I was writing Crossfire and I'd be writing something and then think, oh, am I going too far? And then something would happen in the news and i think, I haven't gone far enough. <laughs> so so was sort of like... And throughout it, there's sort of newspaper articles kind of reflecting what's going on in sort of broader society as a backdrop to what's going on with the characters. And one of them, I kind of wrote something with... Um, a story about a footballer who says, oh, he's had enough and um, he's going to quit football. It's a naught footballer because he's had enough of people making, calling out racist names to him and so forth. And uh, and then we had the, Raheem Sterling getting yeah, abused. That, all that abuse. And Danny Rose kind of mm-hmm. getting all that abuse. Um, it, it's, it's really bizarre because it's one of these things where I kind of wrote it and I think people are going to think I'm just copying what's happening in the real world. But, you know, I started this book two years ago. It's so strange, kind of the, that mirroring of what's going on in real society with what's, what I was kind of writing in Crossfire and quite quite disturbing as well, actually.
0: Um, earlier on today, before I came here, I, I interviewed the rapper Kano, whose mm. album came out on Friday. And he said that, you know, it's been three years since his last album, and he said there was an urgency to get it out. Was mm. there an urgency with the writing of Crossfire?
1: It was almost like trying to pin down a moving target because the real events were changing so quickly and things are happening so quickly. I thought if I keep trying to Mirror or or what's going on in the real world. I'm never going to get this finished because things are just chasing your tail, exactly. Exactly. So I thought I have to kind of do this, and this is the world, and this is what's going on. And in the political world with the adults, and the sort of the political world with the the teenagers, and I thought I'm going to have to kind of just pin this down and say this is what the story is.
0: Leaving characters behind, uh, how difficult is that to do?
1: There is going to be another book after Crossfire called Endgame, and then
0: everyone's happy for that. (laughs) Right, That's and then, And that. then
1: that will be it. But, you know, but I... I, I oh, no, it won't. It will, it will be as far as um, Noughts and <laughs> Crosses is concerned. But, right, really? but that said, I've said that before, you see. Yes. I said that at the end of Checkmate. Yeah. And then I said it's that at like the end Jay of Double Z with Cross. albums. <laughs> yeah.
0: Exactly. My last album. Yeah, sure, it is true. Yeah. yeah.
1: But, but that said, I think Endgame will be, definitely be it for a while. But Endgame is... Um, I'm already working on that one, so... Yeah. But it is, it is really hard because they're like real people to me. So when they go through stuff... I feel it. It's a wonderful way of actually living multiple lives because you're living the lives of your characters. But when they're in trouble and and they're hurting, I I really feel it. And it's like when I was writing The End of Noughts and Crosses and and I was in tears. And then when I was writing Knife Edge and um, Jude has a chance to rejoin the, the human race and he does something really, really terrible and I remember writing that, and a chill went down my spine. And I just thought, oh, my God, can I really put that in there? And I thought, don't you dare take it out. But it's one of those things, it's sort of like, they become real people to me. And, and Jude was such a piece of work. I loathed him as a character, but, my God, I loved writing him. With my antagonist as well as a protagonist, I want people to believe that they are real people. You might not sympathise with what they're doing, but I want you to understand why they're doing it.
0: Well, the reason you've been so successful is because people feel that. I mean, they... I hope so. They, they yeah. really do delve in that well, well, look, let's start with your first object, which is a writing desk.
1: Yeah, that's my desk. Over there, there's a quote by George Bernard Shaw, which I kind of... I put up, and I'm very careful about talking to journalists, the amount of times I've been
0: <laughs> I think it's, it's worth reading that out for people who can't Well, sit. it's
1: by George Bernard Shaw, and he says, I learnt long ago never to wrestle with a pig... You get dirty, and besides, the pig likes it. <laughs> so <laughs> so, so I, I put that up there as a way of just kind of just be careful when talking to certain parts of the media because they will just want to put everything in the worst possible light. And so I just put that as just my kind warning. of. It's right. a, a warning. It's a warning, basically. Over there behind the lamp, in that heart, is a, an equation. That's my husband's Valentine's Day card because it's an equation for the area that's included in the heart. Now, I... Not being a mathematician, having a Scooby, what it says—it's got full of cosines and signs and whatever. But I love it. It's that the sort of thing. My, my hubby does me. He does these little Valentine's cards that are full of maths and things. Um, so, so I love that. So that's that's been sitting on my desk for the last two years. Um, that is the most
0: romantically geeky it, thing he I've is, ever seen. He is.
1: That's what he's, that describes him. He's a romantic geek. I love him. <laughs> and, and he's sort of like, I know and he always does personalised cards and things. And I'm yeah. going to be talking about. That is another one of my objects, but so Amazing. I kind of so that's my card, and then and that's my Apple Mac that I work on.
0: I mean, this is like a nine to five. You'll go up there and you're not you're nine not to waiting five through. luxury. Oh, right, okay, <laughs> no. nine to nine. Yeah, exactly. or Something like that, like it, right? Yeah. Okay. So you, you, how does it work? I mean, when you're sitting down to create mm. um, a novel. What's the structure?
1: Well, what I try and do is I do the creative stuff in the morning. I'm a morning person. Right. And then I will do editing and so forth in the afternoon and then into the evening. It depends, you know, how close to my deadline I am, sort of like, you know, um, so sometimes (laughs) that changes.
0: You've been known, am I correct in saying this, to hop on a train, turn around and come back in just to get your thoughts going.
1: I love working on trains because you occasionally can look up, take in the scenery and I just find them really kind of conducive to kind of just writing so I just sit there with a notepad and pen I always have a notepad and pen in my handbag and write and so a few times I've just gone up to Charing Cross and then taken the next train home and you know just to get juices flowing if I'm stuck on something
0: the next object we have is the colour purple by Alice Walker Uh uh-huh Wow!
1: Yeah, that is the first book I ever read that featured black characters,
0: and you were twenty one. And by I was twenty one, and uh, I would... but you'd been just to give some backstory. You'd been going to libraries every weekend throughout your schooling, yeah, yeah. and yet with all of that you never, never come across a black no. character? No.
1: And the first black character I encountered in literature was Othello, because that was one of my um, A-level books. But this was the first novel I read that featured black characters. I thought, oh, my God, it's a black woman writer writing about black characters. And if she can do it, maybe I can. It was so important. I look back, I mean, I read that, and then I read Buchi The Joys of Motherhood, and then I read The Bluest Eye by Toni Morrison, and I was kind of away, because there was a black bookshop in Islington, and I was just... That's where all my money went. After kind of paying my mortgage and food, it was books. It was just a revelation, and, and books about black history and black pioneers and inventors and so forth, and I just devoured them. I didn't realise until I read all of them how I'd been dying of thirst for these books and so it planted the seed that maybe this was something i could do too and that my stories and my life were worthy of record it was about my 65th 70th rejection letter um, alice walker came to britain and she was doing a signing at silver moon bookshop in chain cross road and i remember queuing up for two hours to get to the front of the queue and i said Please could you put don't give up? And she said, I can't write that. What does that mean? And I said, well, I want to be a writer, but I'm getting so many rejection letters. And she looked at me, she said, don't you dare give up. And she wrote, to Mallory, don't give up, uh, Alice Walker. And I thought, well, I can't give up now. Alice Walker said, I can't, you know. I can't do it, I can't do it. I've got to keep going. So I got to my 82 rejection letters, and then our publisher finally said yes. And the 82 rejection letters were for about eight or nine different books. But finally, a publisher said yes. And I thought, right, okay, now I can try this for a year. Year. my hubby was my safety net because I used to be a computer programmer and I was so unhappy doing that he said okay give it up your job for a year and I will support both of us but at the end of the year if you haven't made a living you've got to go back to computing because we could only afford for him to do it for a year so I thought there's no way I'm going back to computing no way <laughs> so I was determined I was you know that's why I was working all the hours that God sent because I was not going to go back to computing.
0: What did you get from all of those weekends? in the library, pouring through Mm. books.
1: It gave me a love of reading and the written word and it gave me a love of communicating ideas and and connecting with people. I thought books were such a brilliant way of connecting with other people, but that's as far as it went. And it was only when I started reading authors of colour and so on that I thought gosh, you know, maybe this is something I can do and I can do this as a way almost of kind of, uh, of, of fulfilling the need within me because you kind of feeding the child within me who would have loved to have read stories where they could see themselves, which weren't about race but were about kind of but featured black characters. And it was also my kind of psychiatrist couch in a way. It was my way of kind of dealing with stuff, especially when I wrote Noughts and Crosses because that was definitely my way of dealing with stuff that happened to me in the past that I thought I had dealt with, but I realised when I was writing it that I hadn't. i just buried it. So writing is kind of, I think, has saved my sanity in a way. And I do remember when I was in the last two years in computing, just how unhappy I was, and it, was, it really was affecting my mental health. It got to the stage where on Friday nights, I would be unnaturally euphoric, And then on Sunday nights, I would be depressed as hell. It took me a while to realise this because I didn't want to go to work on Monday morning. I wanted to write. Those few years before I actually got anything published, I'd come home from work and have my dinner and then I'd sit down and write. And I knew within a week of doing that, that's what I wanted to do with my life. I wanted to write. Amazing.
0: Let's go to your next object, which is a CD.
1: Right, yes. What's going and on by Marvin Gaye? Yeah.
0: What an album!
1: Oh wow! I mean, there's a song on it called "Save the Children." <laughs> Every time I hear it, it, just makes me cry. It's kind of like you know, the rivers are polluted, and but we need to do better because you know we need to save our children, and it still applies. And just the song, "What's Going On," that sort of talk to me. So you can see what's going on, and it's just have a conversation. You we don't. Okay, we might not agree with each other, but let's have a di- debate. Let's have a discussion. Don't assume you know what's going on in my life. Talk to me about it. This is gonna make me seem like such an idiot, but I'm going to tell it anyway. Uh, when I first started going at my hubby, because he was born in Edinburgh, he's Scottish, he's white Scottish, I remember our first date, and, I, you know, and I'm thinking, okay, what are we going to talk about? And it was sort of like, and I thought, and having never been to Scotland in my life, and I said, um, I said, oh, so Edinburgh, is that near Loch Ness then? And he said, he looked at me, he went... No, it's not. And he said, "And Laurie, it's Loch. It's not lock. And I thought, "Oh well, excuse me, all over the place." I mean, but, it was sort of like, but I, you know, but it was kind of like, kind of having that dialogue and kind of um and things that I had assumed about Scottish people, about white people, he'd uh, assumed about black people, and so on. It was fascinating, and I think actually. I don't think I would have written Noughts and Crosses if I hadn't gone out with him because it kind of made me realise lots of things about the assumptions that we make about people. You know, the plaster incident in Noughts and Crosses, I've had had such a response to that bit. the, uh, The whole thing of... A girl gets injured, Shania gets injured, and she comes to school the next day and she's got a, a dark brown plaster on her forehead. And Sefi goes, oh, my God, that stands out. And she says, well, they don't make pink plasters, they only make dark brown ones. A number of people could come back to me and say, I never really thought about that before, you know, that the colour of plasters. Because plasters are supposed to make cuts more discreet and so forth, but if you're white, that's fine. If you're my colour, then the, pl- the plaster is actually good, probably more um, noticeable than the cut is. You Shoes was it, another one. Well, exactly. And the ballet shoes, yeah. which Stormzy had at Glastonbury, okay. that sort of had the. Because it's only recently, in the last couple of years, that they started making ballet shoes for, for darker skin tones, for people of colour. And it's still all these so called little things that kind of that the, the majority won't see, because they don't have to perhaps, which the minority are always aware of that I wanted to highlight in the books by, by flipping it. I mean, I talk about diversity, I'm talking about. Uh, not just more books that have people of colour in them, but, but people that, featuring um, children who have disabilities, fe- featuring children who have mental health challenges, LGBTQ uh, teens and so forth. It's so that every child has a chance to see themselves reflected in what they're reading. And I think we owe it to all of our children to make sure that those books are available. Um, so, you know... <laughs> Thank I do. And I... And, and I I said that when I was Children's Laureate and um, Sky News had the headline, you know, which I didn't say, but said uh, Children's Laureate said too many white children in books, which I never said. I I said exactly what I just said there. And I, as a result, was getting death threats and all sorts. It was really, really nasty for a couple of weeks.
0: Do you think that Noughts and Crosses could have been written now because of the amount of outrage that happens instantly and the way people take something out of context mm. and then amplify it. You've said before that your most successful books have always been when you have been at, at your most challenging. Yeah,
1: yeah. You know. I absolutely think it could be written now. What's worked in my favour, I think, is that they were written a while ago, so they've been around 2001. Exactly. Right, That's okay. the first I mean, one a different...
0: On. <laughs> it I mean, completely, completely different, different time. Time, exactly. it's like Four years of Tony Blair's government <laughs> and stuff. I mean, they're completely different. It
1: time. was a completely different kind of um, society vibe and whatever mm. to now. If I were writing it now, it would be more like the TV series because the TV series is Noughts and Crosses Plus and some bits of it are, are very hard-hitting. And I, lo- I absolutely love it. And I think if I were writing the book now, it would absolutely be like the TV
0: series. We'll go to another object. Okay. And this one is a glass paperweight. Let's have a look at that.
1: Yeah, I've got it here, actually. In passing, I told my hubby that I love paperweights. I collect paperweights. And uh, one time when I was um, going to school, the bus fare was sixpence. Uh, really showing my age. And, uh, I remember I had a 1925 <laughs> sixpence. But I really loved this sixpence. I treasured this sixpence. Because I lived, like five miles from school and I was so exhausted that I, I had to use it for my bus fare. So I told him this in passing and, and for Christmas he got me the paperweight and the sixpence. And that was one of the first Christmases we had together and I thought, this guy's a keeper. <laughs> so, and it's just one of those things, that, like I said, I mean, I wouldn't be sitting here now if it wasn't for the fact that he supported me for a year of, um, when, I, when I really wanted to write. And there were some friends... I mean, I said, I want to be a, a writer who told me I was wasting my time and told me that they don't, don't publish black people in this country, so you'll never get published. But my hubby was always in my corner and he said, you're one of these people, when you put your mind to something, then nothing stops you, so you go for it. And he was one of the people who always believed in me from day one. He said, I know you're going to do it. So, love you, Neil. Oh, so. That and oh. So that's why I put that one
0: To be all kind of, you know. No, but... I, I, listen, I, think, I think I want to leave my wife room. It's, like, it's, like it's like an absolute G. <laughs> A, I think everyone's slightly falling in love with your husband he? No, um, he's, he's lovely. I think so. for the sake of balance, I almost have to ask, what's the most romantic thing you've done for him? Because I've had this now long list of romantic things he's done for you. What's well, the most see, romantic the thing for is, you? he's so... more romantic than
1: I am. Leave that with me! <laughs> OK,
0: right. Okay. But,
1: yeah, yeah um, mm, oh, I'll have to think about that one. Because I'm, I'm not... I, I guess I'm romantic in my books, but sort of not... Not all for you. Oh, right, right.
0: okay.
1: (laughs) Read page 27. It's all about you. I'm more practical. (laughs) So so there you go.
0: Um, You wrote an episode of Doctor Who as well. I did. That's a great one. I I co
1: wrote it with Chris Chibnall the Rosa episode about Rosa Parks has always been a a sort of heroine of mine I just feel so lucky I remember Chris Chibnall got in touch with my agent and then sort of said that he wanted could we meet up for lunch and he'd read a Doctor Who kind of novella that I wrote called The Ripple Effect about the Seventh Doctor and he'd read Noughts and Crosses, and he said, we'd really love you to kind of, you know, would you consider writing one? <laughs> and, and I thought, are you kidding me? Yes. I was like, of course I would. Um, did you play it cool, or it, did you just not, go, like, yes, it's of kind of like, uh, you know, I, I, I tried to play it cool, but it's kind of like, you know, I, I really would have been really interested in doing that, and I thought, oh. <laughs> and it's sort of like you know what chris i would love to write one so i i just feel so lucky that i got to be a whole part of that process and and got to co-write it with chris who's an amazing guy
0: well let's get back to crossfire um so we can hear an extract from the audiobook. book uh, mallory can you explain why you've chosen this bit
1: this is the school elections at heathcroft high and this is um libby who's a new character introduced in Crossfire, and you kind of find out who she is, and then and Troy, who, as I said earlier, is Callie Rose's half-brother. And it's an election for their head student, and they are the final two, and they are on stage in front of the school, and they, they're about to be asked um, questions. People have had to submit questions for them and then the vote is going to be the set sort of same day to see which one of them will become the head student. The reason I've chosen this bit is kind of to introduce Libby and Troy as characters and also to kind of highlight some of the, the, the tactics they're using in this school election.
0: OK, let's hear it now. 25. Libby. How dare you, Troy Ealing? What right do you have
1: to say that? I'm not running for head girl just to get back at all those who might have pissed me off in the past.
0: I'm not that petty. How dare you? Our next question is... Mrs. Paxton frowns slightly as she reads on without speaking. Okay. Our next question is... Name two good things
1: and one bad thing about your opponent. Troy, would you like to go first?
0: This should be good. Eyes narrowed. I wait to hear just what he's going to say. 26. Troy. Crap. Two good things. About Libby. That's a tall order. Like Mount Everest tall. Uh...
1: I hear Libby is loyal to her friends and that she's good at history. The bad thing would be her ambition to become head girl for all the wrong reasons. Not for your benefit, but for her own. Libby has about as much political insight as a stale cheese sandwich. And she couldn't care less about any student issues. She sees being head girl as a stepping stone. Nothing more. Okay, not my best effort,
0: but all I could think of on the spur of the moment. Libby's expression hardens like quick-drying cement. She's going to let me have it. Both barrels. That was an extract from Crossfire, read there by Rebecca Lee and Nathan Stewart-Jarrett, written, of course, by my guest, Mallory Blackman. And just a reminder to subscribe to the Penguin Podcast so you don't miss new free episodes twice a month. You can find us at sites like Spotify, via the podcast app, and on your smartphone or on your Alexa-enabled device. A new BBC adaptation of Noughts and Crosses. Mm. With... Yeah, Yeah. come on. (laughs) That's it. The TV, yeah, yeah, are you that? Yes, you are. Okay, now, um, now a certain gentleman from South London who I believe did a little show at Glastonbury on the Friday, <laughs> yeah, um, and made history while doing so, uh, who is a fan of yours, he's appearing in he said is. Noughts and Crosses, isn't he? He is, yes,
1: he's in one episode. So. What can you
0: tell us about, uh, Mr Stormzy's role. Stormzy
1: no. is playing a newspaper editor and he's in one episode and I could tell you more but then I'd have to kill you all. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so which,
0: but, which is illegal, exactly. just to be clear. So,
1: yeah. so, yeah. so but yeah, so um, uh, that, I'm so <laughs> excited about that. And, I mean, Stormzy is just so wonderful. And the first time I met him, because it was at the um, South Bank Award show, and they phoned me and said, would you, <laughs> would you like to present Stormzy with his award? And I thought, he's a pop star, I am not. So why, you know, why would I do that? But they said, because he really loves your book. So I thought, oh, okay. And I thought, it's my chance to meet Stormzy, so am I going to say no? (laughs) So I said, so he was in a, a table behind me and we got chatting and so forth. And he said, You know, is, um, is there any chance of me having a little part in Noughts and Crosses? So I said, Let me see what I can do. <laughs> so, so I got in touch with the producer and then his people spoke to Mammoth Productions. And he's appearing in one of the episodes, which is terrific. And I'll say something else he's really good too. He is really good. So. Well, he's
0: a super talented he guy. He is, he he's is. A super and a
1: super guy. lovely guy as well.
0: Well, you, you have uh, quite a lot in common in the sense that. When he was on my radio show, he said to me that every summer he spent in a library. Mm. You know, this is a kid that he said that he was obsessed with getting badges that you get when you finish reading a book and he wanted to go back in September mm. and have more badges than anyone yeah, else. Yeah. So he, I mean, he For was the Summer
1: Reading Challenge. The Summer yeah. Reading Challenge. Yeah. That
0: was that kid. And I think mm. when you hear that about him, mm. you suddenly understand just why he's more focused than anyone else. He's, exactly. He's... Knowledge, his ability to be able to just relate to so many different things.
1: Exactly. And I think also what it shows is the fact that he has the initiative to get up and do stuff for himself and not wait for gatekeepers to open doors for him. Because sometimes if you're waiting for gatekeepers to open doors for you, you're going to wait an awfully long time. Mm. So I think the fact that he actually did it and then he had record labels knocking on his door as opposed to him going knocking on theirs is absolutely brilliant. And I think he's he's so inspirational because it is that thing of... You want to do something, you get out there and you do it. When I go into schools and things and talk about all the rejection letters I had and I get children to kind of, or teens to guess how many rejections I had and they said, two, three, and I think, oh my God, I wish. And, you know, and I think it is about, if you want something, then go after it.
0: There's another comparison in that. I mean, one of, in one of his lyrics, he says that's not anti-white, it's pro-black. Mm. And you understand that sentiment yourself mm. having to defend that actually being pro-black is not being anti-white. Well,
1: exactly. You it's know? not. It's sort of like, if I say I would like to see more books that feature children of colour... That's not saying that I don't want to see any more books that feature white people. You know, the world of publishing, there's room for for everybody in there. And it's, and you know, the world stories, of music yeah. and the world of films and the world of TV, all the creative industries. It is this thing of, like, Black Lives Matter. And Black Lives Matter, and then people come back with kind of all lives matter. Well, yes, of course all <laughs> lives matter. But... I know, as a black woman, I'm going to be treated differently. I am shopping recently, and some woman deliberately ran her trolley into my, the back of my legs, and I turned around and I said, aren't you going to say sorry? And she said, you need to go back to where you came from. Why should I say sorry? And I just think, you know, all these wow. things... Wow. This was racist Last year, in Sainsbury's. So, you know, so, I, mean, I was minding my business doing my shopping. I've just to be that. clear,
0: racists go to all supermarkets. LAUGHTER <it? Don't> <laughs> I don't want, indeed, indeed. I don't, you, you can find Sainsbury's. them in all supermarkets. <laughs> <laughs> not just, I don't want the Sainsbury's lawyers having to go at us for that. One. Indeed, <laughs> indeed.
1: Um, but, yeah, so it's, it's sort of like one of these things where, unfortunately, since Brexit, there, I have been, you know, I've had more people telling me to go back to where I came from and so forth and stuff I haven't heard since the 70s. But, it, again, it's about kind of challenging that and so forth. And, and that's why I, I do feel... That politicians have to be have to be aware that what they say has repercussions, and and they might say it, and and you know, and at, at very best they think it's banter, or, and at very worst they absolutely believe it. But th- then it's it's other people who feel emboldened to then act upon that, and they have to be aware that there are consequences to what they say.
0: So. There are. There are. Mary. Firstly, thank you so much for coming this evening. It's been brilliant. And um, you've said that this isn't gonna be the last book, Crossfire. So but of course it was eleven years between.
1: Yeah, but the next between, I'm already working on the next right, one. So, okay. it's not going to be so you're not gonna years. make
0: this crowd of no. amazing people here wait eleven no, years for the no, next no, no, one. No, no,
1: no, no, no. That's gonna be that's gonna become sooner rather than later, definitely. The working title is Endgame. Perfect. Oh so. I know what I did that was romantic. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> one thing, ladies and gentlemen, she's remembered the one thing. No. Thirty-seven years they've been together.
1: Go on. Thirty-eight. Thirty-eight. 38. Sorry, thirty-eight.
0: <laughs> thirty-eight. You better um, not. No, 90. we
1: went to um um Houston um because um, my hubby okay. loves. Just
0: to be clear. <laughs> No, That's Houston, not the Texas. Maldives. No, right, no, go, on, no. go Texas, on. Texas, Texas. Oh, um, H- H- Houston. Oh, it's at Houston Station. No. I was like, well, I go there oh all the time. My God. Right, okay, sorry. <laughs> I, sorry. I think I can do a bit better than that. <laughs> <laughs> you no. Know, oh, yeah, we're on the Virgin Pendolino. It was amazing. Texas.
1: Because <laughs> right, yes. my hubby's into um, NASA and. Rockets and all the rest of it. Oh. So we went to see Mission Control and at Houston and we went to see a Saturn five and he's standing there going, and this third uh, stage, the diameter of this is thirty three feet. So I'm going really love. <laughs> <laughs> but he loved it, so we went to see that. So we be-
0: Perfect. Ladies and gentlemen, Mallory Blackman. The literary event of the year is here. Already longlisted for the Booker Prize 2019, Margaret Atwood's new novel, The Testaments, picks up 15 years after the end of The Handmaid's Tale. When the van door slammed on Offred's future at the end of The Handmaid's Tale, readers had no way of telling what lay ahead. Now, the wait is over. The Testaments is available to download as an audiobook now, and if you want to go back to the very beginning, The Handmaid's Tale is also available to download, narrated by Elizabeth Moss.